welcome to episode 110 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, we discuss the present and future of mile and a half tracks and wonder if their importance is in the past. Plus, our big Atlanta preview where we answer if Kyle Larson is more or less beatable now than he was in the first Atlanta race of the year. But first, as always, let's take a quick look back at the 1986 Winston event, which took place at Atlanta Motor Speedway. David, appropriate, of course, because the Cup Series heads to Atlanta this weekend. And this was the first time back then the the All-Star Race moved from Charlotte Motor Speedway somewhere else. And the rules, David, it was a true throwback because there were only 10 drivers in the field. It was determined by a list of winners from the year before, 1985. You know what that meant, David? That meant my boy, Rusty Wallace, was not in the freaking all-star race, despite clearly being an all-star. He had a win that year in 1986 before that event. I mean, come on. But other than that, for me, what stands out about this event for you? Uh, you know, for that story, though, interestingly enough, Jeff Bodine did not have a win the prior year, but he ranked the highest in points among those who didn't win. So that's how he became one of the 10 drivers. Greg Sachs was one of the 10 drivers. That's that's funny enough. But <laughs> that's how Jeff Bodine became one of those 10. Rusty Wallace didn't even get an invite to the Atlanta Invitational which the fans voted on 14 drivers that they wanted to participate in. I I mean, I would call it a preliminary race, but the winner did not advance to the Winston. They actually were eligible the next year for that Winston. But let's dive into it, shall we? Um, After the success of the very first Winston all-star race, R.J. Reynolds uh, saw this as something that could be on par with baseball or basketball, whose all-star events change uh, locales from year to year. And the intention here was to take it to different venues. After Atlanta, it was going to be somewhere else. Uh, But Atlanta was selected for year two, and only 18,500 people showed up on Mother's Day for this exhibition race that paid out a lot of money, but as you said, only featured the, uh, the 10 drivers and for the, uh, the Atlanta invitational specifically those drivers, as I mentioned, selected by fans, but this was supposed to have been the Tim Richmond breakout. It was the year that he signed with Hendrick motorsports. He would go on to win seven races. And there was this general feeling that this was going to be his event. He was invited to a, uh, a press junket prior to the event. And he said, Atlanta Invitational, what is this, a golf tournament? And that just did not sit well with RJ Reynolds. Tim Richmond pissed off a cigarette company. That's amazing. He did not ultimately win this event, but he did set a new track record in qualifying for the race. Uh, you know, looking at the lineup, it was a sort of this uncontested layup, uh, Tim Richmond, strong car, young drivers, uh, aging, popular, winless drivers. And one of those veterans was Benny Parsons and he had himself a day. He was stout in the early runs as he's made his way through the field. And then eventually the, the second half of this race, uh, he took over Tim Richmond did lead 56 laps. Parsons went on to lead the final 37 to win the race and clinch a spot in the 1987 version of this event. 
But after the race, he got a kickstart on his broadcasting career. He joined the ESPN booth to uh, to call the Winston proper. And for that race, that was a clunker, my friend. Bill <laughs> Elliott led 82 of the 83 laps, truly dominant performance for him and Melling Racing. They pocketed $220,000 all in for that race. But Alan, the fact that this race did not garner much uh, attendance and in going back and watching this race, it's evident that there's barely anyone camping in the infield and just outside the track. The stands did appear full, um, but that was the big takeaway is they did not get the draw that they thought they were going to get. RJ Reynolds said uh, never again. And they moved the Winston, which later became the all-star race back to Charlotte where it hosted the event until 2020. Yeah, of course they didn't get a big draw. Rusty Wallace wasn't in the field. What are they thinking back then? <laughs> but no, it just shows you how much times have changed, right? I mean, uh, right now, I mean, there were, I, I just think of the Bush Clash too and the All-Star event. They would do anything you could to get as big of a field and as big of a name as possible, like alter any of the rules, right? I mean, they would do anything now to make sure the biggest names are in the field. And then even winning that preliminary event, Benny Parsons had to wait a year plus just to get back in the All-Star race. I mean, it just shows shows you how, how crazy you know uh, attention spans change and and times change and uh at least they're starting to move it again because i i think it benefits from moving away from charlotte motor speedway yeah yeah and, and i like changing the, the, the just the different tracks that we're at for for this event but uh, you know the the mother's day thing i want to pick your brain on this yeah. and and probably someone more studied in this than i am can probably pinpoint the origins of it, but I think the lack of outward success for this event put a black mark on scheduling anything on Mother's Day for well, okay. a very long time. And I, I, I would have to imagine that NASCAR for many years went back to this event specifically as a reason to just avoid this day altogether. Don't schedule it because clearly it means a lot specifically in the South. We seem to have gone away from that. I think the the Mother's Day race this year seemed fine. But uh, yeah, for for a while, this race soured folks on having uh, the all-star race at a different location, scheduling races on Mother's Day. Just in, in hindsight, not the big win that uh, RJ Reynolds was hoping for, of course, they're, they were in the promotions business. But uh, yeah, this this specific event had a lot of long lasting ramifications. Yeah, who knew something could uh, one event could have so many ramifications into the future. But that is why we do these lookbacks, especially to start our episodes. Now that we are post 100 episodes here on positive regression. Good look back, David. Like it. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job posts at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. 
Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, let's get the episode started, David, because we just talked about the history at Atlanta. Now we're going to talk about bigger picture since the Cup Series heads to Atlanta. It's time we discuss mile and a half racetracks like Atlanta. And we had this idea before they announced the reconfiguration of Atlanta Motor Speedway. We might get into that a little bit uh, in this discussion. But David, it's time we talk about these because for the first 15 years of this century, they were the tracks that defined NASCAR, right? The bread and butter of the schedule. Uh, for a long run there, there were 11 races at these cookie-cutter tracks you know, per year. That number is down to nine this season, so we know it's cutting back a little bit. We, again, we just got word Atlanta will alter its mile-and-a-half track, so it won't be the exact one that we think of or know of. You know, All this just leads to the question, David, if or how much these tracks matter anymore. And that's open-ended, so let me just get your initial thoughts. When I mentioned mile-and-a-half tracks in 2021, what do you think of? Uh, I think of the 550 horsepower package mm. and that these venues aren't putting on the shows that they previously did. A lot of fans think that NASCAR went in the wrong direction by adding more mile and a half tracks, but there was a good reason for that. Folks were going to those tracks. They were tuning into those races. And let's, let's take Atlanta. Uh, for, For instance, it was known for so long for, it's last lap passes, Dale Earnhardt over Bobby Labonte, Kevin Harvick over Jeff Gordon, Carl Edwards over Jimmy Johnson. And the buildup to those moments from green to checkered flag brought forth some pretty incredible racing. For a 500-mile race, they were action-packed events, and the fans flocked to that. And all of a sudden, that action sort of died down. And the fans stopped going and and some stopped watching. You know, Alan, for a long time, these were the tracks of the future that were just being mm-hmm. run in the present. And, and when you think of the facilities uh, like Texas, uh, Las Vegas with their neon garage, uh, Chicago land, I mean, some of these newer tracks with their amenities, they, they were built for fans and then when fans didn't particularly care for them the the industry has scrambled to understand why they've tried to correct the issue they've tried to recreate some of that action packed racing that we saw in previous years and so far i think it's it's fair to say to no avail it's a different kind of racing i think atlanta uh, specifically it was and it still is its own unique beast of a track and they all are yeah yeah, but it but it lacks kind of those optics or those moments uh, that create memories after years of having built that reputation. Yeah, and we think back to I mean the, that time you were talking about you know it all converging right, expanding tracks, adding more of them because there was a billion seats and they were getting filled right. They had good finishes, but it also coincided with the, the playoff, the chase right. I mean these tracks were the pathway to a championship. 
in more ways than one. Back back in the chase days, David, there were five of these tracks in the 10 playoff races. You had to be good there. You had to be good on these mile and a half. If you swing and miss, you're not winning a title. Think of Jimmy Johnson uh, back then, folks. You know, his first six titles and how good he was and how much he dominated the mile and a half tracks. Even after that, though, for many years, the final race of the playoff, right, was Homestead, a mile and a half track. You had to be good if you were going to win a championship. They meant everything. You had to be good. So, you know, pre the schedule changes, pre the engine package shuffle, these tracks meant everything, David. Yeah. And and under the current playoff format with, with the knockout rounds, I think it was Furniture Row Racing that sort of figured it out. Uh, or, or maybe I should say that they executed on the plan better than anyone did before them. Uh, Martin Truex 2017 title season. They won eight times. Six of those were on mile and a half tracks that contained very little banking, which was the track type into which Homestead fell. And that was sort of the precursor to what we are witnessing right now. The tracks that matter now are shorter tracks that hold playoff representation. And it's certainly uh, interesting to me, at least, that the results at places this year for Phoenix and Martinsville and Darlington don't reflect the typical results for the season at large. So it's the same path. It's just the different scenery and the mile and a half tracks now hold a different and possibly uh, less important meaning. Yeah, and that's a good way to bring it up, either looking at this year's playoff lineup, if you will, or, or even last year. I mean, it, it's an interesting question how much they matter into this year's championship. So I try to break it down a few ways when thinking about this. Look, if you're good at these tracks, the mile-and-a-half tracks, the cookie cutters, of course you can get wins, accumulate playoff points, all that stuff. That will matter toward a championship. But these are 550 tracks, as you mentioned. Last year showed us the importance of 750 tracks in your path toward a title. David, four of Chase Elliott's five wins last year were not mile-and-a-half tracks. So to that front, uh, subpar may be a, a weird word, but being subpar on these tracks, you can still there's still a pathway to a championship if you are somewhat subpar or behind on speed at these 550 mile-and-a-halves where in previous years, again, the Jimmy Johnson domination era, you could not be that far off on these type tracks. Yeah, and I'll one-up you here. Three of the four fastest teams last season on 550 tracks failed to make the championship four. Wow. Those three were Ryan Blaney, Kevin Harvick, and Martin Truex. 750 tracks dominate the playoff schedule. And more importantly, they are placed in critical positions on that schedule. And as it stands, 550 tracks are probably best viewed as a springboard to points. And some of those can be wins or playoff points, but improving your positioning. Uh, But the mile and a half tracks certainly feel more supplemental than they should. Uh, And most folks typically realize that after the fact, right? Because last fall when Kevin Harvick didn't make the championship four, there was a large misunderstanding Mm -hmm. from fans is to really why and how that happened. And additionally, folks were incensed that the drivers who did make the championship four dominated Phoenix. And really that should have surprised no one because three of the four were the three fastest teams 
on 750 tracks. The fourth was Denny Hamlin, and he drives for the richest organization in the sport. So the mile and a halves are still abundant. There's a lot of them, but quietly uh, tracks falling into the 550 bucket seem to be going away or changing shape or doing something radical. So motivation to nail the 550 package, the mile and a half setups, that's only decreasing at this point. And when you see Chevrolet teams come out in 2021, they have the the aero body advantage. That's a big deal. And this year, there's a parts freeze. There are restrictions on um, CFD. Everything's been reduced. The only way that any of this changes on the fly is if, I think, if NASCAR steps in. And Hendrick clearly focused on these tracks. RCR is focused on these tracks for good reason. They suit the drivers that they have. And they are uh, races that are more influenced by pit strategy, which is in the wheelhouse of both Hendrick and RCR. Going the other way, Team Penske is terrible at strategy and want, but but wants to compete for championships. Well, guess what? That means they're all in on 750. And as long as they're locked into the playoffs, they can take what they can get on 550 during the regular season because eh, the points are icing on the cake and they're already locked in and they're geared towards trying to win a championship, which runs through a path uh, littered by 750 tracks. And no matter the era or year, I mean, it's not like if you were good at, at Texas or Charlotte, that didn't really tell us much about how you would do at Martinsville or Phoenix, right? But what can you take away? What 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 are the mile and a half tracks indicative of now in 2021? Uh, ooh. Uh, on the team side? Yeah. Uh, arrow, uh, an engine program, strategy, and... On the driver's side, I mean, these guys now, they're holding it open, uh, wide open a lot now. Uh, So probably the ability to search for the most viable groove. Uh, So let's let's call that awareness. Mm -hmm. Uh, In addition to feedback about the car, you're always looking to get faster. And restarts, which have become, as we've heard a few drivers say now, more and more uh, like drafting tracks, uh, the ability to restart on these 550 tracks and these mile and a half specifically within the parameters of the rules package, all of this does require talent and intelligence. But in terms of uh, the mile and a halves being a central focus, it probably should not be with the way the schedule and the playoff format is currently structured. And as we have discussed, strength on 550 and and mile and a half do not represent the best title winning strength. It is not completely indicative of that uh, because that is uh, really a different conversation altogether. Yeah. And that, that things will change in the last 10 weeks and especially last three weeks on those 750 tracks. But let's look even further into the future. Uh, we had Michael self on driver, driver coach last week. We talked about uh, street courses. We talked about adding road courses. Uh, Michael self made some uh, good, uh, good Twitter buzz last week when he said, you know, he believes there will be 10 road courses on the cup series schedule in the near future. That means we'll have to, you know, the schedule will change if, unless they expand it. You know, if, they leave it at 36 and there's 10 road courses that means some are falling off the schedule right 
uh, are mile and a half tracks, the odd ones out. Now, I'm just doing the math here, David. Vegas still has two races. Atlanta still has two races. Kansas still has two. If there's any bloat on the schedule to be targeted, I would think you'd start there. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, would you make the argument, though, for taking away any other kind of race? I, I don't I don't know where you'd start if you're going to add somewhere else. You have to subtract somewhere. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. But I, but I think NASCAR's already showed its hand a little bit because from what I've seen with Kentucky and Chicagoland and a regular season race at Texas uh, being removed, uh, and if you want to expand to two-mile tracks, Michigan lost a race, mm-hmm. and Fontana is reconfiguring uh, to a short track. It seems that NASCAR is walking away from the 550 package. So that would mean mile and a half tracks. I don't think that they kill off the package. They might just no longer go to as many of these facilities. So yes, I would say that the mile and a halves are the most likely tracks on the chopping block here. Wow. I mean, j- again, just thinking from 2000 to 2020, right? 20, I mean, just how how prevalent and uh, dominant they were and really defining the sport like that. And I just think of massive grandstands, both f- absolutely filled and then unfortunately both 30% filled, right? I mean, we, we've seen both in the span of uh, our short lifetimes, David, and, and it's crazy to think about. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and, I, and I think if folks watching now that are maybe relatively new to NASCAR might not understand the energy of getting it right at these facilities. They, they probably expanded the seating a little too fast. Absolutely. There, there, there was probably a bubble uh, or, or, or NASCAR was a fad at one point in the mid 2000s. And we didn't accurately realize that for what it was. And we've had a pair of economic recessions since then. So a, a lot has changed. But I keep going back to the kinds of racing that existed at these tracks for a while, uh, certainly for over a, a decade and, and maybe more so uh, uh, for, for some tracks specifically. And you can understand why there was so much energy to get it right at these places, because when it was right, it was pretty damn cool and it did draw the fans attention. Uh, now it just seems that it's, I mean, I don't know the general take the general pulse. It seems it's too far gone, uh, to do anything more constructive. So that's why we're seeing things like, uh, a reconfiguration at Atlanta to a track type that I, I don't even know if it exists. It's a hybrid draft draft track Darlington track. I I don't even know how to explain it, but you can understand uh, how these, uh, these pretty ambitious ideas are coming about is because they're wanting to return to some glory days that, uh, yeah, I don't know. They they might be, might be too far gone at this point. Let me ask you about that though. Maybe, maybe it's a a challenge to you though. were there glory days or we always look back on the past as something better? It seemed, especially NASCAR fans. I, I'm somewhat guilty of that, but are we looking through rose colored glasses at some of these intermediate races throughout the early two thousands? Or am I just not remembering how good they were? Uh, I think it depends on the race. I mean, Atlanta certainly had, yep, I remember uh, the had ending. some, yep. had some magic. Uh, Texas had 
a fan following for a while. And then it was some, some different, uh, some, some pavement tricks and reconfigurations and it kind of went another way. Uh, even Charlotte, that might be the one where you lose a lot of people just because the 600 mile race is a pretty daunting affair. And, and even then there were some interesting, uh, finishes, memorable moments for sure. And I think it's a challenge to try to get back to a point where you can even come close to enjoying that. But you're right. I mean, Texas had one race and then expanded to two. Uh, Las Vegas had one and then expanded to two. And and maybe maybe it was a saturation on the schedule. Maybe it was too much of one thing when I think the ultimate goal for any auto racing schedule should just be balance. And in NASCAR, I think one of the reasons why stock car racing in America is so endearing to many is because every weekend you're going to see something that's a little bit different than the previous weekend. It isn't all road courses. It isn't all dirt tracks. It's a different track every weekend. And that challenge where typically we we're supposed to reward the best driver across all track types. It doesn't seem to be that way anymore. Um, but the challenge in that is uh, is real and we would celebrate the driver or team that figured out how to do it week in and week out despite the playing surface being markedly different and that's kind of how i want to close the conversation in terms of you know what do we make of a series heavy on just short tracks and road courses uh, exactly what you just said david i'd be worried about the pendulum swinging too far right a- away from these big ovals because I mean, well, just like what it did with the cookie cutters, right? Maybe we brought too many in. Uh, I worry about swinging and putting too many out to pasture. Uh, I will always associate, you know, NASCAR as and its drivers, right? As as oval drivers, the the best drivers in the world as oval drivers. Uh, it makes me wonder. And this is, you know, this is a whole other maybe episode one day, David. But is Jimmy Johnson a seven time champion? Is he the goat with ten road course races a year on the schedule? Is he a different, are we thinking of him different? Does his success have anything to do with the cookie cutter era or would he have just adapted? Right. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to posit that. I don't want to suggest Jimmy Johnson was a product of a schedule, but it does make you wonder, you know, without, without this, he, he was just so good at this type of track. Would he have adapted on anything or does a 10 road course schedule alter the past? If you will, you know what I mean? It just makes me wonder. Yeah, I, you know, I feel okay about Jim. He he won at nearly every track he visited, and even uh, Kyle Busch is the only multi-time champion that's active right now, and he's won at nearly every track. So, I mean, I feel pretty good about their mm. their their standing in the sport in that regard. Uh, but I, I mean, look, if I'm being honest, I'm a captive audience. I get paid to write and say things about NASCAR. So I, I guess I'm in regardless of, <laughs> yeah. of what, what the schedule looks like in the future, but the key to any future schedule is, is balance. You can't add too much of one, but you can't diminish any other track. You, you can't diminish a track type by lifting up others. That's, 
where I come to a disagreement. I, I think placement on the schedule does that. I think the playoff format currently does that. A knockout format where the tracks are set in stone beforehand, of course it's going to induce the kind of competitive dynamic that we're seeing right now. And the mile and a halves are, I, I don't know, if, if, if they are all but gone, either short tracks or road courses, one of them could become the specialty, the new specialty of NASCAR, but the other one would not be prioritized. And you bring up a good point. What if the championship race took place on a road course? Yeah. What happens then? NASCAR becomes a series for road course specialists who might also do okay at short tracks. AJ Allmendinger, cup, you know, contender. And and it might not be wrong. I'm I'm not saying that I wouldn't be entertained, but it won't be balanced. And Mm. that is what's missing right now. It just happens to be one priority over the other. We once prioritized mile and a half tracks. We've now deprioritized it and things are kind of out of whack. So I think moving forward is just to make sure that we don't try to repeat that same mistake. Good discussion, good stuff, an ode, and a eulogy, if you will, a look back on the mile and a half tracks, which are still around, don't get us wrong, but uh, good, to, good to look back on them and think about those. And David, fun to discuss those mile and a half tracks because that's where we're going, right? That's what sparked the whole conversation is that the Cup Series does head to Atlanta. It's the second time they have been there uh, so far this year, the Cup Series. They were there earlier uh, this season, and I believe it's the first repeat we've had so far. So, David, look back to last March. Kyle Larson, I don't know if that was kind of his coming out party. I know he kind of he won in Vegas, but he dominated that Atlanta race, led 269 of the 325 laps. But he ultimately faded away at the end, and Ryan Blaney got the victory, earning it uh, for, at, right at the end. So uh, what do you what'd you take away? What do you think we learned from that March race? I, I think it's interesting that you said it was Larson's coming out party, because mm-hmm. I, I have in my notes Chevrolet's coming out party. Okay, there you go. I guess you can make the, the argument for, for Homestead or Vegas, but... This race in the spring in Atlanta, where the tire wear was so high, and a number of Chevy drivers, Larson being the dominant one, but also Alex Bowman finished third. Daniel Suarez had a big performance despite his 17th place finish. He threw down a double-digit pass differential that day. This was a sign of things to come for the Chevrolet drivers. Uh, Even Kurt Busch, who crashed out of this race, had the second best median lap time in the race. (laughs) Clearly, he did not fulfill his promise that day. Chase Elliott had an engine failure. He also had the fifth fastest median lap. So Chevrolet as a whole, beyond Hendrick Motorsports, with Larson acting as the, uh, the manufacturer's most dominant driver, I would argue it was all a harbinger. It's it's the the whole rest of the the big track 550 season has kind of followed along the path set by this initial Atlanta race. Okay, you mentioned the high tire wear because that's what Atlanta, of course, is known for. But who made the best use of strategy back at the 500 miler? And, and I don't know if you can replicate that, you know, coming back around for this 400 mile race. But when you look back on that, who did the best with strategy because of that that high tire wear and the options it presents? Because does Ryan Blaney count as the best? I feel like they, well, he, he's, he's got he the trophy right. to point to, right? Exactly. 
the fall off was massive. Uh, it was 1.8 seconds of degradation on average from the beginning of a run to the natural conclusion of a long run. And Conserving those tires, uh, without a doubt, was influential in the win itself. Uh, Kyle Larson's tire wear was not especially bad compared to Ryan Blaney's. It just hit a point where it fell off of a cliff. Uh, Blaney had 28 laps at a sub 33 second pace after the final green flag stop. Larson only had one less, so they were on par there. But Blaney conserved what he had and had the fastest car across that final stretch. His first lap that clocked in worse than 33 and a half seconds came with four to go. Wow. Larson's first, uh, 33.5 came about 20 laps prior to that. At that point, Blaney just roped him in. Yeah. Larson suggested that Blaney closing like this knocked him out of his rhythm, which we'll have to talk to more drivers to better understand this. It seems weird on the surface, unless, you know, in all the extracurricular racing that Larson does, no one ever gets that close to him. I don't know, but I found that interesting and building for strategy purposes around tire wear. The short pit is mathematically advantageous at high tire wear racetracks. The long pit does nothing for you except gamble on the relatively low likelihood of a caution breaking up the cycle, and it's probably not worth the risk. For the most part, I don't think that we saw anything egregious in the Atlanta race uh, earlier this year. Uh, The only long pitter I noticed was Jeremy Bullins on behalf of Brad Keselowski, but they were laps down at that point. Uh, The most efficient teams, and we might be talking sleeper picks uh, for the win here this weekend, Kevin Harvick's team Hmm. with Rodney Childers. Rodney Childers found Kevin Harvick nine positions across the three green flag pit cycles. Kyle Busch's team with Ben Bishore coming in with seven And Bush, by the way, had the fastest Toyota in that spring race. So I I, kind of feel like some of the guys that made moves uh, there earlier this year have uh, have a legitimate shot to disrupt the uh, the betting favorite this weekend. Yeah, and they can do it again since they've improved. Right, they got the little data, and you know the focus will be on Kyle Larson uh, losing that March race. And as you said, he probably shouldn't have. You mentioned what his uh, excuse was or how he explained uh, kind of you know losing that lead or, or what exactly happened there. But given what he's done since then, David, right? I mean that that was the rub. I remember you asking, you know, he had never won a 500 mile race and kind of gave that one away. Well, he's done a lot since then. He's won a 500-mile race, uh, one on a road course. He's done all this stuff since then. Given what we saw in Atlanta the first time and what we've seen since then, this was an interesting question. I want to hear your answer. Is he more or less beatable <laughs> now than he was back when he dominated just a few months ago? I wrote this question into the show notes, and I have actually vacillated on this all day. <laughs> Good. I I actually think Kyle Larson is his own biggest enemy mm-hmm. uh, in general. Had he conserved tires better, of course, he would have won Atlanta. Uh, but he didn't do that. 
We've seen 550 races this year won by other drivers. Kyle Busch at Kansas comes to mind. Uh, Pocono, a little different because both uh, Pocono races depended heavily on pit strategy and not too many teams followed Larson's pit sequence over the course of that weekend. But ultimately, I think at Atlanta, he is less beatable than he was because high tire wear creates contests of truth. Uh, Someone who stumbles into good track position cannot simply aero block for laps on end. And I mean, they can do it maybe on a short run, but not on long runs. And this is a long run racetrack. Larson's team is one that right now can win in a variety of ways. And that's restarts. That's long run passing. Uh, They can defend position really well on green flag pit cycles. Cliff Daniels isn't quite the guy that can leapfrog positions, but he's, he's getting there. He's inching closer. He'll be the betting favorite this weekend for good reason. And unless the team has just lost a lot between when was the last win Nashville (laughs) and now (laughs) uh, the odds are that he just does not lose this race. Yeah. And that was the almost win includes the almost win in Pocono as well. So he's got what a two week losing streak. I mean, how, how dare the five team, but I, I tend to agree. I mean, they've only improved since that March race. And if they're again, not diving as deep as you just did, but if there were any weaknesses, David, I have to believe the the months in between have helped, uh, have helped strengthen those up. Right. Um, we, we, what we've seen out of him close out races when, 500 mile plus, you know, the longer races, I think he's only gotten better. So I think he's even uh, less beatable than he was when he led most of the race last time. So, and that's why David, he is my pick to win. I'm just going to reveal it. I mean, why I know it's fun to go out on a limb sometimes, but it just seems, just seems dumb to pick someone else other than Kyle Larson this week because of his speed that we know of, because of what he did back in March. This is a shorter race. It's a hundred miles less so uh, he probably would have won the 400 miler, right? If it wasn't back in March. And, and I just factor in how much they've improved since that race. I don't see any reason to pick against him. Therefore, I have to go with the betting favorite, Kyle Larson. Yeah, same for me. Uh, unless we see a team able to rival him in speed, and it could take one race, I, but uh, until we see that, it's Larson at 550 probably for the foreseeable future. Good stuff there. All right. The contrarian performers, maybe we'll differ here. I'll I'll go first and say, I mean, a contrarian performer may be picking anyone other than Kyle Larson, but uh, uh, Kyle Busch, as you mentioned, Brad Kozlowski maybe can surprise, but I'm going for a real overachiever pick, David. I'll go with Chris Buescher. His 550 speed, not great, about 15th in the field right now, but the results, they tell me at least something, enough to go with because He has four top tens this year. Three of them, guess where they are? Atlanta, Kansas, Charlotte. Three is enough of a trend for me. If you are looking for a value play on your fantasy game, if you are looking for a potential overachiever, I think Chris Buescher can get it done at Atlanta this weekend. I I think that's a very nice pick. I'm going to go with Kurt Busch. As I said earlier, he had the second best median lap time in the Atlanta spring race. He ranked six in that category across all 550 tracks, so that was not a one-off fluke. Uh, The team has steadily progressed into a playoff points position that 
I assume they want to keep. And on top of that, Matt McCall is the year's most improved strategist by a moonshot, uh, retaining Bush's running position on over 70% of green flag pit cycles. That, of course, should come in handy for uh, what I'm expecting to be a race of long runs. All right. So uh, the best of luck to each of us on our contrarian performers. All right, David, another good show. Don't forget we are available on all major podcast platforms, no matter your device. Our entire catalog, back catalog of episodes, is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. That stuff does help spread the word about this podcast. We, of course, notice it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we would love to hear them. Reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. You know we love answering your questions sometimes. We do entire episodes dedicated to them. David, you are always working hard. What do you got this week? Lots going on this week, but I will point to my article on motorsportsanalytics.com, my six after six column, six statistical trends including a detailing of Kyle Larson's recent dominance, the impact of crew chief Ben Bishore on Kyle Bush's season, and uh, I highlighted the year's most bizarre stat profile among strategists. I'll just tease that out. Uh, so be sure to check uh, that out at motorsportsanalytics.com. Yes, it is a good one there, so make sure you check that out. David, I'm kind of busy this week, so that's good. After you have listened to this on Thursday morning, which thank you for being a subscriber, make sure you check out my Twitter feed at Alan Cavana and check out our latest speed sport video, Quick Hits, that gets you set for the weekend of racing. Uh, Much NASCAR and and well beyond. A lot of dirt, a lot of cool stuff going on this weekend in the world of racing. We cover it all with our Quick Hits video. Make sure you watch Fantasy Live on NASCAR.com. Myself and Amy Long get you set for... For your fantasy weekend at Atlanta, it's getting late in the season. You need some of those value plays. You're running out of the big starts. You can't start Kyle Larson every week. We'll try to give you some good advice on there on what to do this weekend in terms of strategy. And David, I'm happy to say I will be down in Atlanta, NASCAR.com, doing a really cool pre-race show uh, before the obviously the race gets started. But I will be a part of that with Alex Weaver. We got some really cool guests: Larry Mack, Matt DiBenedetto, uh, a bunch of others coming on there. So make sure you check out NASCAR.com before Sunday's race. It'll be happy to be a part of that. So looking forward to that. And as always, thank you for listening to Positive Progression. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. We'll see you next week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.